Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I'm encouraged you to open your Bible to the book of Joel. That's the Old Testament, Joel, second of our minor prophets as we get back into a series called God in the Ruins. And so if you are a guest today, welcome, glad you're here. I promise you I won't leave you confused. But we are looking back at a really specific point in the Old Testament history that I think is fantastic. Now, I'm becoming a really big Minor Prophet fan over the last several weeks as I'm digging off into these. And i got to tell you, the, the Minor Prophets are all very weird. Every single one of these characters are just weird, and it takes weird to know weird, right? Amen? Right? But they're all very strange. We started last week with, uh, with Hosea, and Hosea had a very un- unfortunate uh, romantic life with his wife, Gomer. That's a name to keep, right? Guys, if you ever find a wife named Gomer, well, don't marry her. Anyway, so don't do that. Uh, we are in Joel now, and Joel is also a fantastic book. And Joel is a short book. How many of you like short reads? Like, yeah, I like the short reads. Give me the cliff notes. How many of you like long novels? Like, you like the long books, right? I, I kind of find myself in the middle. Every now and then, I like a really long one. And every now and then, I need a good short one. Amen, right? Uh, the long ones make you, make you think too much. And y'all know me. Uh, it, it hurts for me to think too much, right? The short reads make me feel like I accomplished something. So every now and then we get some of these shorter reads in the Bible. But just because the book of Joel is a short read doesn't mean it's not incredibly impactful. So I want to bring us into the book of Joel. Again, our whole purpose in this series is to, uh, is to introduce you to the Minor Prophets and show you the gospel in the Minor Prophets. Because the gospel is incredibly pronounced in the Minor Prophets. All right. So as, as compared to doing like preaching the whole books, which would take us... A long time, we'd be here for a long time, and you would probably mutiny, throw rocks at me, and tomatoes at me, and probably leave. What, I, what I'd like to do with every one of these books is do like a, a, a survey, like a, a three or four, five minute, like fly around the island kind of thing, introduce you to the book, and then we're going to land right in the middle of a text, okay? And the purpose of that is this, because I like to preach expositional. I like to preach from a text. I want to unpack it as much as I possibly can. I want to look at all the juices and all the flavorings in it. I want to get the most out of the text. And I really don't like just to kind of hit a topic and kind of talk about a topic. Does that make sense? There's, there's times for that, but I think, it's, I think we're all better fed when we get all the goodness out of a text. Amen? Amen? All right. So we're going to do the flyover first in the book of Joel. So if you open your Bible to Joel, uh, I just kind of get you on a, on a timeline. Joel is uh, really hard to understand chronology. In fact, of all of the minor prophets, there's more uncertainty about the timing of the prophet Joel than any of the other minor prophets. He is the first, probably the first, of seven minor prophets to the nation of Judah. Remember back in 931 BC, if you remember the last couple of weeks, significant ha- event happens in Israel. In Israel, there's a divided kingdom begins, civil war that takes place. And you have two different timelines that begin in 931 BC. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, all right? And by and large, not a glorious history. Not very good, bad kings, doesn't last very long. A lot of evil, a lot of wickedness. And so you have, you have this shorter line of the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's the ten northern tribes of the nation of Israel. And then you have the southern line. That's, that's referred often to as, as the line of Judah. It's really the, the, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, okay? And that line lasts a little bit longer, but in both cases, there is idolatry, which the Bible refers to in, in many different ways as spiritual adultery, okay? Unfaithfulness to God. And so there's intermarrying with, there's other idols they begin to worship, and it's not soul worship of Yahweh God of the Old Testament, all right? And so problems arise. And God would allow in his sovereignty, in his providence, that the, first of all, the nation of Assyria, 
in 722, 721 B.C. to conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. And then later, 586 or so B.C., Babylon to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And all of these prophets are grouped around these events. Okay, They're either speaking into Israel, or they're speaking into Judah, or relative nations close to the proximity of and around the relationship of the fall of these kingdoms. Does that make sense? Y'all shake your head, right? All right. So historically, we're putting them all in the same kind of grouping. That's why they're bunched together, as well as the fact that they're all telling a similar narrative, and they're all rather short. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's major prophets, and we think, well, the major prophets, those guys are important. Like, if you walk in as a major prophet, you're like, ooh, ah, Jeremiah, ladies and gentlemen, Isaiah, he's the major prophet, right? He's important. And then you got Jonah walking, like, oh, it's just, just Jonah, right? It's not really like that. You have the longer versions, major, and you got the short compiled versions. In fact, uh, in, the, in the Jewish Bible, you looked at the manuscripts. Isaiah got its own manuscript. Jeremiah got its own. Ezekiel got its own. And the book of the 12 is the minor prophets all in one manuscript. Did you know that? All right. All in one. All right. So broken out, we get the, the minor prophets, but major message. So here we are, Joel. Joel's time unknown, I think probably around the 8th century B.C. Other scholars say it was after exile, but I think there's some indication that it was before. And so most likely 8th century B.C. Prophet to the southern kingdom, 107, to Judah. Uh, the book begins in fabulous form. There's a plague, right? It's almost like we're back in Egypt, you know, there's a plague. And it's a plague not of Auburn fans or Alabama fans. Y'all can laugh along with this this morning, right? Or, or, or not even LSU Tiger fans. We can all like, whoa, that's a plague, right? Dale's not here to defend himself this morning, right? It's a plague of locusts, all right? Grasshoppers, essentially, all right? There's a plague in the nation of Judah, and it's a pretty significant plague, all right? To the point that really for Joel, as James Montgomery Boyce says, in Joel's mind, the invasion of locusts is an unprecedented and unmitigated disaster, okay? Which is another reason why, because he plays it up so much, the locusts, that I think the exile has not really happened yet, okay? But nonetheless, there's a plague, and it's bad in Judah, all right? The, the locusts are eating everything. People are hungry. It ain't good, all right? There is also a really big teaching on the day of the Lord. We're going to see that in just a minute. The day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? All of the prophets, in some form or fashion, mention this, this big day of the Lord, right? And it can mean a couple different things. Typically, anytime God acts as an act of discipline, in the Bible, it's referred to as a day of the Lord. It's a day of God's vengeance and judgment, okay? But there's also a future, y'all with me? Day of the Lord, right? And so it needs to be looked in the context of a near prophecy. There's going to be a day of judgment, but later on there's going to be a day of all judgment for all history and all mankind. Amen? Right? The day of the Lord, all right? And one last thing. The prophet, prophet Joel, regardless of the fact that he's just three simple chapters... In the middle of these three chapters, we're going to get into a text that is so rich that you can't help but see the gospel. In fact, the very first sermon ever preached happened on the day in which reference back to this chapter. There's a, there's a day in Acts chapter 2 we refer to it as the day of Pentecost. You ever heard of it? Check your head like this, right? There is a scripture that the early disciples grabbed quickly from the text this morning. The follow-up on, hey, what is happening on Pentecost? Well, the Holy Spirit of God falling down. And you know what? Joel said something like that. Get your Bibles out. Study the Old Testament, y'all. Okay? All right? Pretty significant in regards. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at James chapter 2 in just a moment. Before we get there, I want you to look at the sin, the locust. All right? 
The locust is eating up everything, and the locust is the ruin. Now, we we kind of use this word in this series, uh, God in the ruins. We all have ruins, don't we? We all have parts of our life that are falling apart. Would you, yeah. I look in the mirror every day, and the older I get, the more I realize I'm falling apart. Amen? Right? We're falling apart. And we're falling apart for a lot of reasons. All right? We're falling apart. Maybe it's a spiritual falling apart because we have sin in our life. That's crept in, and we've strayed from God. We've run from God. We have relationships that have fallen apart. Maybe our, our marriage has some issues, or our kids. We all got some kids that have some issues, right? All right? And we have struggles in regard to those things, all right? And so we're falling apart. And, and maybe it's, it's, it's the physical fall apart. We're, we have things that happen in our life as a result of our sin that led us to ruin. So all of this idea of ruins is a result, and this is first and foremost, result of our sin. Number one, your worship guide. If you're home with us today, grab a notepad and a Bible, and I want you to fill this first one in. The ruin, or the ruins of our life, is the result of our rebellion. The ruins is the result, or are the result, of our rebellion. I want you to look at verse 11 of Joel chapter 2, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. Catch this. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? The greatest ruin is the day of the Lord. It's when we all have to give account for this life and our faith in this life. And who we place our faith with in this life. Who can endure it? The ruins of our life is all a result of our own rebellion. The reason why the day of the Lord is on the horizon, church... It's because sin is in the present. Amen? If there is no sin, there's no need for judgment. And here's the operative word today, justice. Okay? Justice. I think about Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5. For evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Today I want to look at the, the attribute of God that God is just. Number 8. I just filled in number 8 for you on the first. There you go. Right before the number 2, right? God is just. Proverbs 28, verse 5, gives us clarity in regard to our own day. I found over the last several years, there is a push for social justice or cultural justice, right? Proverbs 28, verse 5 says this, though. Evil men do not understand justice. You know why we have issues with justice today? It's because we have sin, right? And sin distorts justice. We, we struggle with, well, is God loving? And the answer is yes. Is God also just? The answer is yes. Is God going to condemn the lost world to hell? The answer is yes. But does God still love me? Absolutely yes. Is God merciful? Yes. But is God truthful? Yes. God can be all of those things because he's God. And you're going to see that in our text momentarily. Number two, God's love and justice demand and motivate his judgment upon sin. God's love and justice Demand and motivate his judgment upon sin. I like what A.W. Tozer said. A.W. Tozer wrote a lot on God's justice, by the way. He said, God's justice and God's mercy do not quarrel with each other. That's true. Here's the gospel. I want you to listen carefully. Yes, God is absolutely loving and merciful. But on the same coin on the other side, he is also righteous and just. Amen? And because he is absolutely 100% both, there must be judgment. This day of the Lord. 
right? Well, well preacher, can't God just give us a, a free pass? And the answer to that, because of his holiness and his righteousness, it is impossible for God to grant a free pass on sin. Because sin must be atoned for. A.W. Poser continues, he said, I am thankful that justice in the hand, is in the hands of God. And justice is in the hands of God. Recall Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now today, y'all noticed what I'm preaching behind, right, today? Y'all were probably scared, right? I mean, when I pull out the pulpit, you know it's getting serious up in here, right? If you're a guest, normally I have that table thing right here because it's a little bit more relational. And I always get scared of those big pulpits, you know. Sometimes you want to hide behind them, especially if the guns start going off, right? But, but they're kind of intimidating to me, right? But there are some scriptures, especially in regard to judgment and justice, that you just need a sense of reverence and awe to. Amen? Amen? This is one of those texts this morning. So if you have your Bible, Joel chapter 2, let's get to verse 12, our text for the message. Even now, right in the midst of God's, like, here's the day of the Lord's coming, and that's coming because the ruin of our life is a result of our sin. And here it goes, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. By the way, you may recall these, these words a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah. Again, all the prophets telling a very similar message of repentance. And it's all, hey, the, the, the language is weep for your sin. Mourn over your sin, right? Not justify your sin. Not give excuses for your sin. Not make yourself feel good about your sin. But mourn and weep and repent of your sin. And even now, Joel says, if you do that, maybe God might relent. Number three, God's patience. This is really important. God's patience is not a license to sin, but merciful opportunity to repent. You ever studied the book of Revelation before? The book of Revelation is intense. Like, talk about the day of the Lord. It's like, it is the day of the Lord laid out for you. Like, and, and no matter how you view the events in the book of Revelation, the order or whatnot, what you see is this. There is an elevation of God's judgment as you read the book, right? Like, it's bad. And it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. And, and people look at that and go, well, God's just mean because God's allowing it to get worse. But I look at it and say, you know what? God is gracious. You know why? God, in the midst of judgment, is still allowing people to repent, right? If it was, if it was me, and this is, this, don't, this, don't take this, you know, like I'm blaspheming here. But if it was me, I'd just get it over with, right? Just destroy them all, kill them all, and let God sort them out kind of thing, right? But God said, no, 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 he's a gracious God. And his patience gives us an opportunity to repent. John Bunyan, you may have heard that name. Sin is the dare of God's justice. This is so rich. The rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. And isn't that what we do when we don't repent? When we live in our sin, although God is merciful. And if we're looking at this text in the sense, and I, I'm, of 7th, 8th century B.C., long before Babylon comes in, God is crying out to his people. Guys, listen, I'm going to judge you. Judgment's coming. Your sin has to be atoned for. But you have time right now and the opportunity right now to repent. And the, and the locusts and the trials and the, the struggles of this life are all neon warning signs. Amen? Right? Like, it's going to get worse. 
unless you repent. Now, I'm not a, a, a prophet in the sense, like I, I don't know when the end of time's coming. But I look at our world and I'm thinking it's like locust plague. Like we're starting to see warning signs. And God is starting to say, you know what? Wake up, church. Wake up, church. Wake up, church. And God is, God is reminding the world, you know what? There is God, and God's over control over all things. And you better come to Christ. You better come to Christ because it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Right? Did you ever imagine we would see the last three years? No. It's going to get worse. Now, there, there are some people who think that we're going to, it's going to get better. It's going to get peaceful. I think they haven't read the Bible, honestly, because it's going to get worse. And that's the point. It's going to get worse. But in the worse, God's going to allow the opportunity still to repent. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. That promise is the promise of eternal salvation for those who are in Christ and judgment for the lost. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the patience of God allows the opportunity to repent of your sin. Amen? Verse 13, Joel chapter 2. And rend your hearts, and not your garments. So there's, there's, there's times we have a, a fake repentance, don't we? we feel, have you ever felt sorry to get caught? Anybody raise your hand? I remember many times as a kid, I would get caught because I was a lot like, uh, I can't mention his name, otherwise I owe him $3, but my, my son, right? And, and he is like his daddy, apples and trees, okay? All right? There was many times that I would get caught in the middle of sin by my parents or a teacher or Sunday school teacher or pastor, the list can go on and on and on, right? And I would, I would feel sorry, and I would say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. The reality is this, I really wasn't really sorry. I was sorry, but I wasn't repentful, right? I was sorry I got caught. And how often do we do that? We're sorry that we got caught, but we're really not repentful of our behavior, right? Because we keep doing those things. That is the nation of Israel. God continues to yell out, stop doing the bad, evil, wicked things. Stop it. And Israel says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll tear our garments. We'll do all the outward expressions of repentance. But nothing changes in our heart. Nothing. You know the difference between feeling sorry and repenting? In sorry, nothing changes eternally. Internally. In repentance, everything changes internally. Your heart is realigned back to God. It's not just, well, I'm sorry I got caught. It's now I actually... I want to cleanse my heart from the wickedness of sin. And I want to move back to the holiness of God. That's the difference between the two. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for, listen carefully, He is a gracious and He is a merciful God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I, I, I'm going to let you know Jason a little bit. Jason here loves Shane and Shane. Have you ever heard of Shane Bernard and Shane Everett, Shane and Shane in a group? I remember that song, The Lord is Gracious. I think it's Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and slow to anger, rich in love. He's good to all. And it goes over and over. The Lord is gracious and slow to anger. He is rich in love. He is good to all. And it goes over and over. I, I, I'm sorry, Kelly. I just have to sing, okay? And so over and over. I re, I'm reminded of Psalm 145 here. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he will relent over disaster. You know why? Because he is so loved. Great Charles Spurgeon said, if our sins be mountains, God's love should be like Noah's flood. God is that loving. He wants, he wants our repentance. But listen carefully, if we don't repent, judgment is coming. 
Number four, divine discipline is an act of divine love. Let me tell you this. It's really, really important. And if you're a parent, you understand this reality. If you love your children, if you love your children, you will discipline your children. Amen? If you don't love your kids, you will give them free reign to do whatever they want to do. I remember a couple conversations as a youth pastor. Nick, this is really important. This is like one of the first things I learned as a youth pastor. All right? There are a lot of people, who, a lot of parents, don't get me wrong, parents, I love you, I want you to listen carefully. A lot of parents who want to be their teenager's friend. But listen carefully. I had to tell this to a couple parents one time. And I was in my 20s. I didn't take it very well from a 20-year-old, right, <laughs> who didn't have kids at the time. Your kids don't need another friend. They got friends. But you know what your kids need? A parent. Be a parent. Parent your kids today so that you can be friends with your kids later when they're adults. Amen? As, 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 listen, and we're sinful parents. And we love our kids to the point of discipline. How much more a holy God who loves you then will discipline you because he loves you. I, Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the very reality of this, that God's love and God's justice absolutely are connected. Because I would say this, if God is not loving, he's not just. And if God is not just, he's not loving. You with me? The absence of one is the absence of the other. Amen? Exodus 34, verse 6, echoes this truth. The Lord passed before them, proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow and angry and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 14, Joel chapter 2. Who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. By the way, we'll get to the book of Jonah. You know the funny thing about the book of Jonah? Jonah, the most spiritual people in Jonah have nothing to do with being a prophet of God. Jonah is not by far the most spiritual person in the book of Jonah. There's the guys in the boat. They're more spiritual than Jonah. There's the king of Nineveh who hears the message that Jonah gives. By the way, if I, sometimes I feel like I preach a horrible sermon. Like I, I walk away on Sunday mornings thinking, did I say one cognitive coherent thing? Did, any, did anything land whatsoever? And I'm reminded of God's promise. The word of God doesn't return void, right? But there are some Sundays I walk away thinking, that was just a terrible sermon. There's probably some Sundays you think that, that too, right? But and then I, I'm encouraged by this. Joel preached the worst sermon that's ever been recorded in the Bible. And a whole city repented. Amen? Amen. King of Nineveh. Here's the message from Jonah, and he says, "Who knows? God might actually, re, re, you know, might actually relent." Jonah chapter uh, chapter three verse nine. He says, "Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish." Even the king of Nineveh knew this: that repentance was absolutely critical before the day of the Lord, because it was there. Joel two: Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grave offering, a drink offering? The Lord, your God, blow the trumpet in Zion. This is, this is Israel, Jerusalem specifically. Consecrate a fast or set apart a fast. Call a solemn assembly. But pause real quick. Y'all never notice. I holler more when I have a, a, a pulpit, right? I get louder when I have a pulpit. Y'all notice that? I don't know. Something about a pulpit that says, I just got to let it go, Danny. Just like, got to let it go. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Gather the people. 
Consecrate the congregation. Set apart the people. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. What Joel is saying is everybody better get serious before God before it's too late. And maybe that's the message this morning. We all better get serious before God before it's eternally too late. Now, some of you are like, what does that mean? Like, if, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that means this. Your sin is leading you on an eternal beeline towards hell because of your sin. It has nothing to do with God's love. It has everything to do with your sin. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, God's son, Christ, died for us. You with me, church? So if you're like, well, what does that mean, preacher? I don't, I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Your sin separates you from God for all eternity. But Christ has built a bridge by his life, death, and resurrection. So if you repent and you turn to God and you place your faith in Christ, then you too might be saved. Amen? Then you're prepared for eternity. For Christian, like, if we're not serious with God and we're living in sin and we are casually living our life in complacency and we're not growing in our faith and we're not sharing the gospel with our neighbor, let me tell you something. We better have a holy come to Jesus meeting. Because if anything we've seen the last few years, the days are drawing nigh. There's warning. Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people. We were D-Life this past Friday. I have a group of guys at D-Life. We were talking about weeping. For some reason, we associate weeping with weakness. The reality is this. We all need to weep over sin. Either our own personal sin. There's times we need to weep over our own sin. Or maybe our family's sin. But listen, in our culture and the world we live in, our country, do you not love this country? Do you not, do you not feel a, a, a deep grief? Of the sin of our country? We need to weep. Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach by byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So the people are crying out, God, God, do something in us. And people need to repent. And, and the reality is this. God, God, please spare us. For, not for our sake. This is really important. But for your own name's sake. Number five, write this down. God is zealous for the glory of his name. You cannot overstate that. God is zealous for the glory of his name. There, I've said this a lot, and I'll repeat myself a lot because I'm a preacher and I do that, okay? There are two things that anchor my view of the gospel, that anchor my theology, that anchor my Christian life. It is the sovereignty of God and the glory of God. You with me? That God is providentially in control of all things. Amen? He don't need me for nothing. He allows me to be used by his glory. He, he invites me into a partnership with the gospel, but he did all the work. I'm just the messenger. Amen? And the glory of God is this. I don't live for my glory. It ain't about me. Hear, hear the Christ. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? God, if you relent, not for the sake of, of us, but relent for the sake of your own name and your own 
testimony, your own witness in the world. This is not the first time, by the way, that, that truth has been said. I, I think about uh, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 is a pretty significant text. Uh, remember, Moses goes up and gets the tablets, the Ten Commandments. Y'all shake your head, Ten Commandments, right? All right. And while he's gone, the nation of Israel has a little party down in the valley. And Aaron, who's an absolute idiot, can I just say that? He's an absolute idiot. Is supposed to be kind of leading his people spiritually down in the valley. But they get restless because Moses is up there with God. They get restless. And so they come to Aaron and say, Aaron, we need a God. We don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses, but we need a God. They had seen the glory of God through the plagues, through the miracle of the Red Sea, through the provision in the wilderness already. But they need another God. They were not satisfied with God. And so what they did was, Aaron, we need you to make for us unto God. So they brought all their jewelry to Aaron, and Aaron fashioned a calf out of it. Now, when Moses confronts him about it, you know what Aaron says? Well, I threw all the jewelry in and out jumped a calf. Sounds like the Big Bang Theory to me. But anyway, that's the point. Is that basically what it is? Unbelief, right? Listen, this is a devastating reality. God's angry. And God God tells Moses, you know what? I'm going to let the people go and inherit the promised land, but I'm not going with them. I'm not going with them. Because here's a holy God and an unholy people, and I'm I'm not going with them. And the people hear the news, and it's literally the text, it's a devastating word. And so Moses prays on behalf of Israel. He said, God, is it not your presence that makes us distinct? And he, and he appeals to the glory of God among the nations as, as, the, as the appeal to, to, to not go with the people. So his discipline, his, his relent from not going with us and go with us, not because we deserve it, but for your own name's sake. You see it? Isaiah chapter 48. I'm going to give you some prophets real quick. For my name's sake, God says, I defer my anger. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, like Isaiah's reminding us, for my own sake, God's saying, I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel, when we look at the prophets, let's just hang out with the prophets for a second. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, God says, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath but upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name. God relented disaster for the sake of his own name, that it should not be profaned, the sight of the nations, in whose sight I have brought them out. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore, he exalts himself. I, I had this conversation with somebody one time about, you know, God's going to exalt himself. God, God's all in it for his own glory. And the person made a comment like, doesn't that seem weird that God's all about himself? And I was, the answer is no. Who else is God going to be about? Amen? Who's greater to God? Nobody. This is, why, this is why Jesus could, could, could swear upon basically his own, own self. He could, he could basically give a testimony to himself from his own self. Because there's nobody greater 
to give, to give qualification to. It's God. There is none greater. Let's go on. Verse 18. I'll get close to land the plane. Okay, we're in the text. We're not doing the, we're in the text. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. And he had pity on his people. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 30, or chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the heart of God. He, he's jealous for it, and he had his, his people, his land, and he had pity on his people. And the Lord answered to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will no, no longer do that. And I will remove the northerner far from you, and I will drive him. Now, what is Joel talking about? Again, you've got to put Joel in context. What's the message of where are we at? Okay, I think we're before the exile. And he's talking about, yes, the, the, the judgment and the plagues. Of, it's God's like warning light going off in your dash. Like there's problems coming. But, but if you'll repent and turn to me, there's still, there's still a chance that God will, will still salvage the beauty of Israel. And by the way, God will always do that because there's a person named Jesus that would come on the scene. Y'all with me? Through, through the branch of, of David. And so, but, but then there's the four, the following um, prophecy. The, there's the near fulfillment and the following fulfillment. And that would be that God would bring Israel back in the land even after the judgment, the day of the Lord, right? And then there's, the, there's the, the next fulfillment. And that would be the person Jesus, right? God will restore the fortunes of Israel because of his mercy, because of his grace. Y'all still with me? Y'all good? Hang in there. I'm almost done. I will remove the northern from far from you and drive him to a parched and desolate land. His, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard to the western sea. A stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things or evil things. Verse 21, though, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. I just want to tell you this, and maybe this is, we, we started the service. Jason, I appreciate you talking like that about the service. The reality is this, that we don't often stop and reflect on how often God has done great things. If it were just the gospel itself, we have more than enough reason to shout with joy. If it was just the gospel. If we lived in Atlum, in Africa, with no air conditioning, barely usable water, all we had was goat on a stick, not much to live for, not much future to dream about, and we had the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would be blessed, church. It's, it's this that makes me shout. Sorry. How, how, how pitiful it is that we complain about everything when we already have everything. Fear not, a land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. By the way, sin brings a breakdown of creation. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit and fig trees and vine give their full yield. There's a, there's a picture here. If you've ever gone to Israel before, I mentioned this in our, our application group on Wednesday night. Israel is developed to the very end of the last inch. If you fly into Israel, if you go to the corners of Israel and look out and you look into Syria, the very line, the border between Israel and Syria is obviously noticeable. You know why it's obviously noticeable? It's, it's, it's green up to a certain point, and then it's brown. When the nation of Israel is in exile later, moved out, you know, the land, it goes brown. But God said there'll be a day where you come back in, and there will be, again, green fields. You will recultivate. You will, re- listen, 
you will again re-steward the land. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication, and he poured down for you abundant rain. And the early and the latter rain, as before, the threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. See that, which I sent among you? He's talking about physically the locusts, the grasshoppers. Later on, he sent also Babylon as the conqueror, right? You shall eat in plenty. You shall be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. Keep reading. We're almost done. It it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out. Now this looks really, really familiar. I will pour out my spirit. And all flesh. Now, we're not talking now about near fulfillment. We're talking about a significant event that I referenced earlier in Acts chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Number six. This is important. It is only by God's Spirit that we are convicted of our sin and led to repentance. It's only by God's Spirit, and that's exactly what Joel is talking about. He's talking about the, near, or the, the fulfillment of Pentecost after the arrival of Christ. We are convicted of sin and led to repentance. Let's talk about pneumatology for just a minute. That's a big word. I just mean the study of the Holy Spirit. Hang in there, okay? Two texts I want to read to you. John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. John chapter 14 says to the Holy Spirit, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you, and you will be, will be in you. John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's one of the most hard understanding to have like jesus is physically present here it's advantage that you go away and jesus says yes because there's there's something that's there's the other part of the tree that's going to indwell within you okay and it's one thing to have me here present with you it's another thing to have me in you amen right so advantage that i go away for if i do not go away the helper holy spirit will not come to you but if i go i will send him to you and when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of, the, of this world is judged. I'll tell you this, we need the Holy Spirit of God. I think Baptists were kind of afraid of it, right? I noticed that on Sunday mornings because sometimes we start singing. And some of y'all start swaying just a little bit, you know. Not dancing because we're Baptists, right, you know. Start swaying a little bit. Every now and then some of y'all do this. It's like you're afraid to answer the teacher's question kind of thing, right? Or the, that's the Baptist you know, kind of thing. The Holy Spirit leads you to raise your hands, raise your hands. The Holy Spirit leads you to kneel at the altar, kneel at the altar. The Holy Spirit leads you to fall on your face, cry, cry. 
the Holy Spirit leads you and empowers you to go tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ, then by all means, you better go do that. We need the Holy Spirit of God. We don't need to be afraid of him. He was a promise in the Old Testament. He came in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, and it's by his Spirit that his church is what it is today, and the gospel goes forth today. We need the Holy Spirit of God. Let's go on. Joel chapter 2, verse 30. And I will show wonders. Future fulfillment. Now, like, here's the hard thing about the prophets. Like, the prophets have the near fulfillment, the future fulfillment, then there's like the grand future fulfillment. It's like bouncing everywhere. Yep. And I will show wonders in the heavens. This has not happened, but it will. Read the book of Revelation. And on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Here is this great day of the Lord we referenced at the very beginning of the message. Verse 11. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Number seven. God's invitation has a firm expiration. If we truly believe that, Christian, we would be much more great commission and missions minded than we are. The longer the Lord tarries, the tarries, not terriers, that's a dog, tarries, the less urgent we feel, the more complacent we become, and the more dire the circumstances are for the lost friends in our life. God's invitation has a firm expiration. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. A.W. Tozer said this, God's justice, listen carefully, God's, God's justice stands forever against the sinner and utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the, the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. You feel the weight of that statement? Well, God's just too loving to send anybody to hell. No, God is loving. You're absolutely right. God is loving. And he did not create hell for the soul, for, our, for the human soul. But our sin, aside from Christ, is destined to go there. Thanks be to God for his great gift through Jesus Christ. God is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. But he is also 100% just. And it shall come to pass, verse 32, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be Church, say it with me. Saved. From Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Our emphasized attribute I mentioned earlier that God, number eight, God is just. God always does what is right, is himself the final standard of righteousness. God's just and righteousness are the same thing. Because he's righteous, he's just. He always does what is right, and in him we can define what is right. He is the standard of righteousness. It is not the culture. The culture does not define right. 
God does. The view does not define right. God's word does. The moment we begin to let culture inform our morality, oh, church, we've compromised. We let the Bible, the gospel, inform all views of morality. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is an unchanging God. And i got to just tell you quickly as a, as a preacher, if God's not changed, neither has his standards. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Psalms 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Catch that? The foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. As Tozer said, justice is not something God has. It is something that God is. So, so what's the point of Joel? The point is this. It's the same point that we're going to rehash over and over. And it's the same point of the gospel. The gospel is this. That you and I are destined on a beeline for hell and for death. Because of our sin and our rebellion against God. And yet God in his love and his mercy and his care for his creation has given us the lifeline. But that is contingent upon crying out to God in repentance. And by doing so, God then, in His love and His mercy and grace, relents from your eternal destruction and welcomes you as a son or daughter. This is the story of every minor prophet. They all have this proverbial day of the Lord, the deadline. The deadline's drawing nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer. Don't procrastinate. Because you don't want to be caught off guard when the deadline comes due. Would you pray with me? This morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is the message of the prophets. This is the message of the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. The eternal salvation, future of heaven one day, promise of hope today, Christ in you today. If there's anybody here who needs to repent of their sin or complacency in light of the day of the Lord, this dreadful day of the Lord, we will have to give account. Lord, I pray that you lead us to repentance. If anybody here needs to join a gospel-centered Bible-preaching church, Lord, today do that. Father Day, I ask that you would just be amongst us in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would lead, guide, direct our, our response then to your word. Lord, every day make us more gospel people, more biblically-centered people. Lord, lead us to cry out to you to mourn our sin. Lord, because your word says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They'll be comforted by forgiveness. Lord, if there's anyone here who's lost, Lord, bring them to salvation. If there's anyone here who needs to repent, lead us to repentance. Build your kingdom, build your church. Restore relationships, restore homes. Do what only your Holy Spirit can do. And we pray that in Jesus' name.